Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 8. You can find it on page 532 in the Bibles provided there in the chairs. Again, I always want to encourage you to have the Bible open and in front of you. I point to it often. Now, in many ways, the opening lines of the Declaration of Independence has become not only a mission statement for our nation, for our culture, but the goal of individual life as well. It says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I think that that's what it means for most, if not all, Americans to live well. But we adapt that. We center that on us. It is self-evident that we have undeniable and equal right to life. But not just life, life the way that I want it. Not just liberty, but liberty from anything that I find personally constricting. And not just the pursuit of happiness, but happiness in exactly what I want it to be. And no one, not even our creator, who has endowed us with these rights can infringe upon my right to live a happy life as I see fit. Now, he can come alongside me. He can help me to achieve my goals and my desires. But how dare he ask me to conform to his? It's fine if he's, when our our, our goals are aligned. When he's aligned with, with me, I mean, I'm with him there, but when those ideas, when those intentions, when those plans, when those desires differ, who then follows who? Do you follow God or do you expect God to come chasing after you? Friends, we're all striving in one capacity or another to live well, to live life to its fullest. But friends, where can that be found? Can you see the danger in this idea of the pursuit of happiness? You see, in in making our lives chiefly about the pursuit of happiness, in many ways, we declared not only independence from Britain, but from our creator as well. He and everything else has now become subject to my pursuit of happiness. That's now the way that we view the world. I determine what the good life is and everything else has become subject to that. One church historian, Nathan Hatch, though he's not the only one that's identified this, he's just the one I'm quoting here. He's observed this phenomenon in American Christianity And it's led him to ask some very deeply probing questions. He says, to what extent have the idols of this age, pleasure, wealth, professional status, and physical appearance, worked themselves into the evangelical affection? So instead of our hearts being centered on God, now we find our hearts sharing space with all of these other things that we desire as much as we desire God, if not more. 
To what extent has the goal of evangelical spirituality become self-fulfillment rather than self-denial? Less a quest to know God and more a means to achieve the good life. In short, have evangelicals so tamed the gospel to accord with American habits that it has been shorn of its radical power to convict and convert? Friends, these are some very powerful questions that we need to answer. See, we were made to live life well. We were made to live life to its fullest. God made us to live free and happy lives, full of joy, filled with delight. But who gets to determine what that looks like? Who gets to lay out that path for us? Who sets the limits and the boundaries of what that means? And who claims right to be at the center? Do you? Friends, this is why we need the wisdom of God. As much as we would like to think that God's wisdom is optional and that there are equally other valid forms, beneficial forms of wisdom that are out there, as much as we would like to believe that truth is only truth if it's advantageous and morality is only good when it's personally convenient to me and when it's not, then it's just neutral, that there's not really all that much evil in the world. There's just a, there's some good and a whole lot of gray. As much as we would like to think that there are other avenues to the good life, or that we can simply just add a little bit of Christ to our already mostly full lives to just kind of round it out and to make us a little better, God's word is clear. The wisdom And revelation that he gives us is essential for life. There really is no good life apart from it. So let's not be deceived here. Let's not be deceived into remaining as simple-minded fools who neglect such a good gift. Let's not be so consumed with living for the many gifts that God gives us that we neglect to live by faith in the giver. Because if we do, the pursuit will not end in happiness. Proverbs chapter 8, it presents us with a worldview. A worldview is, is just a lens through which we view the world. We all have one. But Proverbs 8 is a lens to view the world through the eyes of God. According to his wisdom, according to his power, according to his goodness and his design. And if we really, truly want to live the good life, then this is where we need to turn. And so what Proverbs chapter 8 is going to communicate to us this morning is that learning God's wisdom is vital because God's wisdom is vital for life. Learning God's wisdom is vital because God's wisdom is vital for life. So let's turn now to God's wisdom and let's pray that that our eyes would be open and that we would find life in this text. Proverbs chapter 8. It says, Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads she takes her stand. 
Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portal, she cries aloud, To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and my lips will, uh, and from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips." All the words of my mouth are righteous. There's nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride, arrogance, and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me, kings rule, and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule, and nobles, all who govern justly. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs of water, abounding with water. Uh, Before the mountains had shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its field or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned the sea to its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. Friends, if if we are going to view the world rightly, if we're going to know God to truly know ourselves, if we're going to live life to its fullest, a life that we were created to live, then we need to see God's wisdom for what it is. This passage gives us four descriptions of the goodness and the necessity of God's wisdom so that we might view and live in the world rightly. In this passage, we're going to see that wisdom is our noble guide. Wisdom is our true benefactor. 
Wisdom is our sure foundation, and wisdom is our one necessity. And so first, verses 1 through 11, God's wisdom is our noble guide. No matter how independent, no matter how autonomous we would like to think we are, no matter how much we take pride in our ability to think for ourselves, the truth is we are always listening to someone or something. We're always being influenced in one direction or another. We're always following, always serving, always subjecting ourselves to some set of ideas, some value system, some way of life, some subculture that exists outside of us, but one that is continually speaking to us, trying to persuade us to follow its way of life. No one is completely independent. No one is totally unique. No one. And when they are, we reject them. It's just like insane. Have you ever noticed that? Even the people who try their hardest to rebel against cultural norms, they do it together. And by doing it together, they create a subculture with its own voice and its own values. Right? There's not just one person that went goth. And then everybody else thought, that's a great idea. I love the whole white and black thing and all the piercings and stuff. Let's go do it. Right? No one did that. Hipsters. It's not like there's just one hipster. As much as hipsters want to say, I'm the, I'm the one. I know it. I know what it means to be hipster. And everybody else, they're just following behind. No. It's a subculture. And they do it together. <laughs> Amen. Right? With each society or subculture, though, there are voices, there are ideas, there are values, there are images, there are, there's a dress code that you're pressured and, accept, and expected to conform to. Our advertisement and media has picked up on this, and so they try to communicate to us, they present images, they tell stories to influence us, to get us to view the world the way that they view the world. Many, many voices all crying out, all screaming at once, trying to get us, trying to influence us, trying to get us to and persuade us and entice us to accept their value system and to follow their way of life. But there in the midst of all of that busyness, all of that noise, all of those competing voices, there's another voice that's crying out. The voice of wisdom. And it says there in verse 1, does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? Those are rhetorical questions. Of course she is. She's doing the same thing that she was doing back in chapter 1, verses 20 through 33. On the heights, beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates, in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, she cries aloud. Friends, we tend to think that, that wisdom, God's wisdom is somehow elusive, sort of mysterious, secret, it's hidden. Only a select few people can ever attain to it and actually find it. They're like scholars or monks or pastors, maybe, but they're very, very few and far between. But not for me. I can't gain that wisdom. But friends, that's 
not true. I mean, look at where she is and look at what she's doing. You see, God's wisdom is not only found in the quiet, secret seclusion. She's not heard whispering on the mountaintops or in cloisters or some still small voice in the study or in the sanctuary. She cannot only be heard through extended amounts of time in prayer and meditation. What we see is that she's right out there in the streets. She's in the marketplace. She's at the busiest intersections of life. She's at the crossroads of culture where business and government and education and arts and athletics and you name it all come together. She's at the mall. She's at the office. She's on the quad. She's standing in the middle of the busiest intersections. She's at the stadium. And she's even standing there right in your own living room in the middle of all of your mess, right where you need her the most. And she is offering you wisdom for everyday life. She's like that alma mater statue. Remember we talked about that back when we were looking at chapter one? Got alma out there in front of the school. She's just arms outstretched. Only wisdom is not just standing there, silent and still, holding her arms out. She's crying aloud over the top of all of the chaos, over all of the mess, over all of the madness, over all the competing noise in your life. Right there in the middle of all the madness and competition for your attention, she stands up and her voice rings out, cutting over it all. Okay, so get this. The question is not whether or not she can be found. The question is not whether or not there is truly wisdom, that whether or not wisdom actually exists. The question is whether or not you will listen. That's the question. Whose voice are you going to listen to? What are you going to call wisdom? Who or what are you going to follow? Who or what are you going to live for? And there she is. She's at the gates and crossroads calling out to everyone. Verses four and five. To you, O men, I call. And my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. You see, it doesn't matter who you are or where you are. It doesn't matter how wise or foolish you are, how intelligent or how simple, how moral or how immoral you consider yourself to be. She's out there calling out to everyone, every single one of us, regardless of our past, present. It doesn't matter. She wants us to learn sense, to learn prudence, to know wisdom, to follow her voice. Friends, let, let that be a means of giving you hope, okay? You don't need a master's of divinity to understand God's wisdom, right? You don't have to be this profound scholar or devote your life to the vocational call of ministry to be able to get this. It's there for us all. She's speaking to us all. No matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter what you have done, Lady Wisdom is speaking to all people right where they are, right where they live, and right where they need her the most. That's a gift. Your wisdom is there and she's always speaking. And the reason why wisdom is there and always speaking is because God is everywhere and God pursues his people. 
God loves his children. He continually speaks to them. He hides his word in their hearts so that in the midst of temptation or indecision, truth comes to mind, giving you the wisdom to make the right choice. He doesn't do it for us. He gives us his Holy Spirit to work in our minds and in our hearts, not to do everything, not to just magically transform us, but to reveal truth, to speak tenderly to us, to remind us of the love of God. He calls us and he pleads with us to follow the will and ways of God, but he doesn't do it for us. We must respond. Which is why it says in verse 5, O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. As we have to learn it. That takes effort. That takes work. That takes diligence. And we learn it by listening and by trusting and by obeying God's wisdom rather than those competing voices in the world rather than the lies and temptations of the devil, or rather than the foolish and sinful messages of our own sinful hearts and minds. Now, you may be wondering to yourself, okay, well, fine, she's out there and she's speaking to everybody, but why on earth should I listen? It's one thing that she's out there talking. It's another thing to kind of ask that question, why? Why should I hear and learn her ways and follow her voice instead of all of those competing messages that are going off around me? Well, it's because her ways are good, noble, and right. Look at verses 6 through 9. It says here, For I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There's nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. You see, contrary to what our culture tells us, wisdom is not distinct from character. We'd like to try to separate those out. Our culture may prize intellect, though I'm questioning that more and more every day. But our culture wants what it wants. And so it tries to persuade us that you can be wise and you can be immoral. Think to yourself, do you, would you connect wisdom with godly character? If I asked you, define wisdom for me, would you connect it to godly character? Would you call someone wise even though they're ungodly? Or do you tend to define wisdom by a certain body of knowledge, a certain skill set? I mean, look at this, just, just even further. What, we, we throw these words out here, but try to define them. Okay, what is nobility or righteousness? What is wickedness and what makes it so abhorrent? Why is twisted or crooked speech so wrong? Can you define those things easily? Can you come up with a quick answer there? Or is that just, is that fuzzy in your mind? You see, these are moral descriptions that have all but lost their value in our culture. Nobility, what is that? We think of some sort of aristocracy, don't we? 
We don't think about being distinguished, moral excellence, purity, one who stands up for another person, do we? When was the last time a celebrity was praised for their nobility? Or that they always speak the truth and wickedness is an abomination to their lips? They always do what is right. They are righteous and holy and upright. No, I mean, it's quite the opposite, isn't it? In fact, our culture actually celebrates them more when they push against moral boundaries. It's like the more they, they sort of go against it, the more scandalous they are, the more intriguing we find them to be. And not only do we condone their actions, we actually love them for it. And if we love them for it, inevitably we follow suit. My friends, wisdom is not simply concerned with intellect or certain abilities, but also with character. And so when we think about that, what is going to be a better guide? Who is going to be a better leader? Who are you going to follow? Who are you going to listen to? One who is noble, righteous, and always tells the truth? One who does not. In fact, does quite the opposite. You see, no matter how hard we try, we cannot separate character from wisdom, nor can we separate morality from excellence. Man, I I so want to go off on a tangent about art right now, but I'm not. But you can't separate morality from excellence. That's all I'm going to say. Friends, what makes God's wisdom Good, what makes it a far better guide is the fact that we can trust in it. It's always true, always right, always good, always certain. It will always lead you to what is your best. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy or convenient or comfortable, but it's always going to lead you to your best. It carries with it the authority of the God who made and sustains and rules over all things. And therefore, it is far more valuable than anything else. And that's why in verses 10 and 11, it says, Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels. And all that you may desire cannot compare with her. All that you desire. What's going through your head when you think about what I desire? Nothing can compare. There's nothing greater value than the wisdom that we receive from God. It will lead us to eternal life, glorious abundance found in him. There is nothing that you can desire that can compare with it, but you must choose what you will follow. You must choose what you will live for because what you take will take you. You ever thought about that? You become what you behold. What you live for, what you seek to take is what will take you. If you're living for things other than Christ, they will capture you. Friends, God's wisdom has proven itself true, noble, and right a thousand times over practically in your life, no matter how long you've been a Christian or whether you're a Christian or not. 
If you look back carefully over the course of your life, you could see where God's wisdom came into play and how it always served itself to be noble, true, and right. It's a sure guide. And so why don't we follow it? Well, the real reason we don't follow or we don't value God's wisdom over everything else is not because we question its goodness, its rightness, or its truth. Not ultimately. That's not the real, real reason why we don't follow it. It's because we love other things more than we love God. It's because we live for other things in this world more than for him. It's because we don't believe that God is worth more than silver or gold or precious jewels. That there are other desires in our life that are worth more than God, that are better than God. And it doesn't seem wise to us then to give up those things and this off chance that God might be better. That's foolish in our minds. And so we don't, we reject it. We're not willing to let go of all of those good gifts that he gives us in order that we may gain him. Or maybe we think to ourselves this, you know what? I'm willing to go with God if, if I can have God and fill in the blank. But if I can't have fill in the blank, God is not worth it. He's not valuable enough to me. And friends, that's why God's wisdom is calling out to us. Don't remain fools or simple. God is infinitely better than anything that you can desire in this world. Choose him instead of silver. Choose him rather than gold. He is far better than jewels. And all that you desire cannot and will not compare to him. So will you listen to her voice? I mean, she's right there and she's calling out to every one of us. You have heard her voice now. So will you follow her? Noble, right, and true? Or will you choose instead to follow the corrupt noise of our culture? You see, there's the alternative to God's wisdom is a foolish unreliable, unrighteous guide that will lead you astray or leave you lost and helpless in your own blind pursuits. That's your alternative. It's not much of one. So is that really what you want to follow? Would you really call that wisdom or would you call it foolishness? Will will what you are following lead you to life to excellence, to purity, to righteousness and truth? Or will you truly gain in listening to those lies of the world that you cannot gain a million times over in following the truth of God? And so, contrary to the twisted messages of our culture and of our own sinful hearts, God's wisdom is a sure and noble guide. A guide that we would be fools not to follow. The second, God's wisdom is our true benefactor. Benefactor is just a fancy word of speaking of a kind helper, someone who gives us provision towards a goal. Benefactors invest. 
Benefactors protect, they care for, they, they give for the purpose of your betterment. It is to your advantage to have a benefactor. In verses 12 through 21, we see that God's wisdom helps us to rule well and to live well. It says, I wisdom dwell with prudence. Prudence, we don't like that word, but prudence is a good word. Prudence is God-given shrewdness or craftiness that understands the nature of things, the trend of things, all of the inherent dangers that are before us, and it enables us to navigate through all the challenges of life while doing the will of God and avoiding folly and sin. That's a good thing. It continues, and I find knowledge and discretion, discretion being the ability to discern underlying purposes. Verse 13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride, arrogance, and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Friends, when we live according to God's wisdom, we love the things that that God loves and we hate the things that God hates. We love and revere God more than we do anything else. Now, we don't like that word fear, but the truth is we all live in the fear of something. It's motivating us every day. Maybe that's death. Maybe it's failure. Maybe you want to flip it, right? Put it on its opposite extremes. You live to please someone or something, right? You live to please man. But when you come to understand who God is and what he has done for us, his perfect love for us and our love for him through faith in Christ, it casts out all fear. Why? Well, because he becomes the standard that we seek to live by. We live for him, not in fear of those other things. And here's the thing, you're going to, you're going to have to choose fear, who you're going to fear, right? As one pastor put it, it is foolishness to fear God more, or I'm sorry, it's foolishness to fear illness more than God, to fear poverty more than God, to fear hurting our career more than God, to fear rejection more than God, to fear loneliness more than God, to fear failure more than God. Ultimately, you will fear God or you will fear everything else. Either you will fear God and you'll choose the way of wisdom or you will make other things more important than God and you will take the path of fools. Rather than hating what God hates, you will love it. Do you hate evil, pride, arrogance, the way of evil and perverted speech? Do you hate it? You're thinking to yourself, oh yeah, man, I hate it when other people are proud or arrogant. Absolutely, I hate that guy. What about you? Do you hate the pride, arrogance, and perversion of your own heart? Do you live in the fear of the Lord? Verse 14, I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight and strength. By me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly. Friends, there is no greater counselor or sound sage. There is no deeper insight or source of heroic strength and power for change than the wisdom of God. It is our greatest benefit, our greatest benefactor. In truth, there is no other God is the one who both raises up 
and who tears down nations and rulers. It is only by the grace of God that they have come into power and it is by his sovereign rule that they are torn down. And when they rule justly, it's because their rule is consistent with the wisdom of God by common grace or it is directly empowered by the wisdom of God. But when they are unjust, it's because they're seeking to rule in their own wisdom, in their own strength, or for their own selfish purposes rather than God's good and glorious design. And friends, we do not have to think very hard to identify examples of unjust rulers. Now we need to remember King Solomon is writing this to his son Rehoboam who would one day be king. And he's telling his son that God's wisdom is the means for you to have a just rule. And unfortunately, Rehoboam did not listen. Now, we are not, never will be kings. But this still speaks to us. Because each of us has been given a measure of responsibility a measure of power, a measure of influence over the lives of others. And the question becomes, how will you use it? Will you be wise with it or foolish? God's wisdom makes kings and judges just. It makes politicians trustworthy. It makes bosses fair. It makes authorities respectable. God's wisdom makes parents, especially fathers, to be faithful and pastors to shepherd well. It makes examples moral and stewards of all the good gifts that God has given us to be good. It enables us as brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage one another and to build one another up towards maturity in Christ God's wisdom enables us in whatever capacity that God has given us, however we've been allowed to rule well, to reflect God's character and God's nature in the way that we lead, in the way that we guide, in the way that we instruct, in the way that we teach, in the way that we counsel, in the way that we serve, in the way that we care for, and the way that we govern. It is God's wisdom that he gives us that enables us to rule well as his ambassadors so that we might direct others' hearts toward him. Apart from this wisdom, we will be unjust and we will inevitably lead others astray. There is no neutral. You are either moving up the way of wisdom or down the path of folly. There's no other way. You can't hold still. But not only does God's wisdom enable us to rule well, it also gives us the grace to live well. Verse 17 says, I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. 
Now, friends, though this passage promises prosperity here to those who love wisdom, I I don't want you to miss the point. The point of this is not that we are to love, uh, the point of this is that we are to love wisdom and, and pursue wisdom, not riches. It's not saying that if we just love wisdom enough, then God will give us all of the stuff that we really, really, really love. That's not the point. It's saying that prosperity is with her. That if you love wisdom, wisdom will love you. And just like any love relationship, when both people love each other and they work at it together, then they thrive and they grow and they prosper. But if you are with her, if you married her just for her money, that's not going to be a good marriage. Instead, she calls us to seek wisdom diligently and to find it. Now again, because this was written by Solomon, it ought to remind us of Solomon's prayer from 1 Kings chapter 3. When Solomon became king after his father David, he didn't pray for riches. He didn't pray for power, for long life. He loved God and so he prayed that God would give him the wisdom so that he might rule well. And we see in in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 10, that it pleased the Lord God that Solomon asked this. And, And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has ever been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days." You see, we don't love God for the blessings that he gives us. We love God because of who he is, because of what he's done for us. All of those blessings that he gives us are an outflow of who he is, and it's meant to lead us back to him so that we delight in the giver, not in the gifts. He does this because he's gracious and loving, and so he pours out his blessings on his children. That's just who he is. It continues, verse 18, it says, Riches and honor are with wisdom, enduring wealth and righteousness. We're to seek God's wisdom with all our hearts, and riches and honor are with her. We don't get caught up or consumed by these temporary earthly treasures and riches and wealth, but we are seeking instead enduring wealth and righteousness that are found only with God. Why? Well, because verse 19, her fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and her yield more than choice silver. Now, how can she say that? Well, because wisdom walks in righteousness and justice and grants an inheritance to those who love her, filling their treasuries. 
And this is no earthly inheritance that it's speaking of here. This is a glorious heavenly inheritance given by faith in Christ who died for our sins and who raised again so that we might walk in wisdom, so that we might walk in this newness of life, living for and longing for the glories, not just of of this puny, pathetic life, but of the glories of heaven where at last we will dwell eternally with God. That's the goal. We shouldn't be so consumed with filling our earthly treasury, but instead to store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy and thief cannot break in and steal. Friends, is this not radically different than what our culture tells us that we are to live for? It is night and day. So opposite. Doesn't this change for us what it means to find life and liberty and to pursue true and lasting happiness? And that though the pursuit might be the same, the goal of the pursuit is completely different. We live for something far, far greater. And as we rule and as we live for him, he will bless us in Christ with material provision for our needs, but most ultimately with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, all ours right now, as we rule and live for him. Friends, there is nothing, nothing that can compare to that. Absolutely nothing. This is a far greater benefit, a far greater reward. So that was number two. God's wisdom is our noble guide. God's wisdom is our true benefactor. Third, God's wisdom is our sure foundation. Back in chapter three, verses 19 and 20, we were told of wisdom's involvement in our origins, that through wisdom, God created all things. It says, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. But chapter 8, verses 22 through 31, take us far deeper into wisdom's activity in creation. Now, let me just stop here and say, look, this treats Genesis 1 through 11 as historical theology or as theological history, okay? It's real, it's true, it's dependent upon the fact that God created all things, Right? This passage makes no sense if that's not true. No sense at all. But if that is true, and according to God's wisdom it is, then man, that changes everything. In verses 22 through 26, we see that wisdom preceded the creation narrative. It says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work. The first of his acts of old, ages ago, I was set up at first before the beginning of the earth. When there was no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he made the earth with its field or the first of the dust of the world. I like that little statement. What this is saying is that wisdom 
preceded creation. Therefore, wisdom knows what it's for, right? Have you ever been at the beginning of a, a brand new project, something that was just kind of a dream in someone's mind, and then it just kind of came to fruition? It was developed. It was built. Anybody? Right? Some of you, some of you were here at the beginning of this church when this was just kind of a, a dream and a prayer, right? And you've been here through the process of developing, and let's face it, we're developing it still. Some of you, it might mean dreaming about the purchase of land to, to design and build a home. A number of you are engineers, and, and your job is to, like, solve problems. You got this thing you got to do, and you got to figure out something to do it, you right? I was talking to Eric about his job and, like, finding fittings and brackets for, like, bulldozers. And that's a problem that you got to fix, Right? And you do it, you know, you kind of work this up. Or, or maybe you've been a part of group projects, right, where you just had this idea, you, you had this project you had to accomplish, and so you got together, you began to brainstorm, you developed ideas, you created a structure, you flushed out the content, and then finally you, pre- you, you, you presented this group project, whatever it is. But you've seen it kind of go from dream to fruition, to finality, right? You've seen that whole process through there. When you are a part of something from the very beginning or from before the beginning, you tend to know, or at least you should know, what its origins are and what its purpose is. If you buy something and it's not working, who do you call? You call the one who made it. Why? Well, because they know how to fix it. They built the thing. They know what it's for. They know how to improve it. They know how to maximize its function. Basically, a master workman knows his creation inside and out. If you have issue with that product, you're going to call the one who made it because he knows how it works. Well, we see here wisdom preceded creation and everything that God made, he made all of it in wisdom without mistake with good and wise plan and purpose in mind. And so if we want to understand life, if we want to maximize life, if we want to know how we can live life to its fullest, where do we need to turn? To the one who made it, right? To see what our purpose and function is for. He knows how to make it operate to its maximum capacity. And we do that by learning from and living according to God's wisdom. This is why God's wisdom tells us that he precedes all that he has made. We must understand it to understand our origins, our beginnings, to understand our purpose, to understand the direction that we are heading, and to understand how we are to live well according to our design. It's important. Now, I need to stop for just a minute and address an issue that some people get hung up on from this text. It's this idea that wisdom was begotten or brought forth, that wisdom somehow had a beginning, okay? Uh, This is actually a passage that the heretic Arius used to argue for against the deity of Christ because in his logic, he said, okay, according to 1 Corinthians, Christ is the very embodiment of God's wisdom, Right, And this text basically says that God brought forth wisdom before the rest of creation. And so, if that's true, then Christ, who's the very embodiment of wisdom, can't be God. You following that logic? Okay? But here's his problem. 
He's reading far too much into the text. Okay? This is poetry. It's, it's metaphor. Right? It's not making a prophetic statement about the beginning of the Son of God. It's a poetic metaphor that personifies God's wisdom as this lady wisdom. Right? It's not creating a literal being. It's speaking of a metaphor, of a, of a personality, bringing something abstract to life. And if we take that same sort of logic to say that, okay, Lady Wisdom is a real literal being and that real literal being is Jesus, then we also have to say something for Lady or Madame Folly from, from chapter 9. Because she's got to be a literal being too. But Aries didn't argue for that. And if you continue to argue it out, okay, this passage is not suggesting that there was a time when Christ was not or there was a time when wisdom was not because you see, wisdom is essential to God's very being. You cannot separate wisdom from God. God himself is wisdom. You get this? Okay, so if there were a time which God created wisdom. It means that there was once a point in time where before God created wisdom, he was unwise and that wisdom is somehow outside or separate from God. And if God, who was unwise, created wisdom, wouldn't wisdom be greater than God? And if wisdom is greater than God, why are we worshiping God and not wisdom? Because wisdom is better. And how does an unwise God make wisdom? It does not make sense. It's like Jed Clampett, right? Out one day shooting at some food and up from the ground came some bubbling crude. And here he is, Beverly Hillbilly. We don't worship a Beverly Hillbilly. The God who is himself wisdom. Wisdom is essential to God's very being. There was never a time when God was unwise. Never, ever. And there never, ever will be a time when God's unwise. You cannot separate wisdom from God's very nature. Wisdom emanates from God's very nature. He passes it on. It is dis- it's inseparable from who he is. It's not like mankind or the rest of God's creation that he created material. It is who he is. And so, because it existed before us, And because it is directly from God's nature, who he is, what that means is we are not born with it. Instead, we must learn it. It is outside of us, not outside of God. And if it's outside of us and it's from God, who is the authority over all that he has made, then guess what that means? You cannot subdue it. You cannot subject it to your whim, to your fancy, to your supposed reason and intellect. It is not bound by your desires or your longings or your wants. You must listen and heed it. You can only accept it or reject it, but it's up to you. And the result is your own folly or your own wisdom. You gotta get that. We cannot stand as authority over the wisdom of God. And so when God's wisdom said, guess what? I was there when he made it all. Who do we listen to? We listen to the voice of wisdom. This is arguing for wisdom's authority over us since it comes directly from the very nature of the God who has made us. And it continues. Verse 27. When he established the heavens, I was there 
When he drew a circle around the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the very foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman. You see, not only did wisdom precede creation, it was actively involved. It was a part of God's creative work. He made it wise. Wisdom knows then the boundaries and limits that God has placed upon everything in the universe. You get this? God placed boundaries and limits upon everything. The sky, the stars, the seas, the land. It's all part of what God has made. He sets up its limits. Oceans cannot transgress their borders because God himself marked out the very foundations of the earth. And so if that is true for the universe, if that is true for the sky and the stars and the oceans and the land, then that is true for the boundaries and the limits that God has placed upon us that we cannot transgress them he is a master workman he knows what he's doing when he designed sex and marriage and families to look a certain way we have no more right to transgress those than the seas have to transgress upon the land or the stars to fall from the heavens or the earth has the right to go spinning out of control into the sun It is cataclysmic. It is catastrophic. It is destructive. It is ruin. It is death. You see sin for what it is. Just look at it differently. Wisdom, God designed the way that we were made to live and live together. And when we rebel against it, it is called sin. It is called transgression. And it is as perilous as the earth flying into the sun. But, but, when we live within the good and wise boundaries that God has given us, it is as glorious as the sun rising and setting and the waves lapping upon the beach. It's beautiful. Verse 30. It says, Then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight. Or maybe your, your, your copy has an alternate translation. I was daily filled with delight. It's really rough right there. Literally, it's delight day after day. But continuing on, it says, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. Friends, here we see God's wisdom delighting in creation the way that God himself delights in his creation. God didn't just wind up the universe and let it go. He delights over it. He rejoices over all that he has made, delighting in the children of man. 
Friends, those who receive God's wisdom, they not only understand their origins and their purposes, their moral boundaries and the directions for their lives, they also understand like never before God's love, God's nearness, God's joy, God's heart. And when we receive God's wisdom, we grow in our delight to the very things that God himself delights in. We too daily rejoice in all that he has made. It's a beautiful thing. Even the reserved John Calvin is not prone to emotion or joy. (laughs) Said, there is not one little blade of grass. There is no color in this world that is not intended to make men rejoice. What about you? I mean, do you you see the goodness in God's design for us? The beauty of it? Does it make you marvel and wonder? Do you see God's wisdom in creating us the way he did? And like wisdom, do you delight in the things that God delights in, rejoicing in before him, delighting in his inhabited world and the children of man? Practically, do you delight in people? So we're living according to God's wisdom, we should. The biblical worldview gives us reason to rejoice. Because God not only made everything very good, but even in our fallenness, even in our sin, we couldn't irrevocably screw it all up because Christ himself is making all things new. I mean, think about that. We can't even junk it all up. No matter how off we are, we can't junk it up. Christ is making it new. And friends, that is reason to rejoice that we were all dead in our sin. God has made us alive by grace through faith in Christ. And one day, Christ's work of recreation will be complete, not just for us or for a select few, but for the entire cosmos. All things rejoicing and delighting and being united in him. And it's going to be even better than it was before. Though it was once created very good, subject to fallenness and decay because of sin, it's going to be made even better. It's going to be perfect. It's going to be complete. Friends, that is glorious. That's reason to rejoice and to delight in him at all times. Friends, do you get this, that apart from the doctrines of creation, fall, redemption, and this eternal restoration, apart from the storyline of Scripture or this biblical worldview that I've just presented to you, you have no explanation for our beginnings. And you certainly have no personal origin. Random mutations? Really? Is that far better to love and worship and follow? There's no ground. There's no framework for morality. There's no standard to determine right from wrong. There's no explanation for sin. No hope in the world. No reason to be filled with delight and to rejoice always. You see, our entirety of life is reduced down to nothing. It's reduced down to these, these momentary comforts and pleasures that can't honestly outweigh all of the pain. They can't. You operate that way, you ought to be a nihilist. 
There's no value. And you can't create it. Right? The, there's no reason to love. And every reason to abuse others and take as much as you possibly can of these few fleeting moments of pleasure and joy in this otherwise pitiful existence that's here for a moment and gone. Nothing. It's not worth it. But for all of your pursuits, it's not worth it. It's no way to live. Friends, that cannot satisfy That is too small a thing to delight in. Even if, even if you were able to get everything that you wanted from this life. It's too small a thing. Because for all of your pursuit of happiness, those pleasures, quick, continually fade, they rot, they decay, they die. That's what you're living for. That's the alternative. God's wisdom is far more sure, and it gives us far more to rejoice in. Friends, what is better? 70, 80, 90, 100 years with some of the world's good stuff or eternity with the glories of God? So God's wisdom is our noble guide, our true benefactor, and our sure foundation. And finally and briefly, God's wisdom is our one necessity. Of all the things that we can pursue in life, there is only one thing that we cannot live without. Only one thing. In verses 32 through 36, it says, And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. God's wisdom is vital for life. Without it, we come only to pain and ruin, death and condemnation. This wisdom that God offers to every single one of us is the key to life and blessing. But friends, we are called to respond. We must listen to wisdom. We must keep her ways. We must hear her instructions and be wise. To neglect wisdom means death. But blessed is the one who listens, who who watches daily at her gates, who eagerly waits beside her doors. Those who find wisdom find life, and they obtain favor from the Lord. But those who ignore wisdom, those who hate and reject it, Even those who simply neglect it will continue down the path of folly as simpletons, as fools, as scoffers, and will come only to injury and death. And at the end of all of their toil, they will not have found life, liberty, or happiness. Instead, They will have found frustration, pain, just condemnation, and eternal death. Friends, that is no way to live. 
And right now you have two options before you. You can continue to ignore the way of wisdom and you can proceed down that path of folly towards your own destruction, towards your own demise, or you can listen to wisdom's voice and find favor and life. Wisdom is our noble guide. She is our true benefactor, our sure foundation, and our life's one necessity. And friends, in Christ, God has graciously given us all things. You will not lose. In Christ, there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that can separate us from his love. He has made known to us his wisdom and his ways. He offers us the forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life with all the joy and all the blessing and all the glory and all the fame of heaven. Will you listen to his voice. Learning God's wisdom is vital because God's wisdom is vital for life. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your law. Father, I pray that we would see the futility of living for other things. That we would recognize the propensity of our hearts towards minimizing you to think that you are not as valuable as gold and silver and jewels and other things that we desire. That we thank you that you continue to love and to pursue. That you make your wisdom known even to fools and scoffers like us, that you do it as necessary to bring us to yourself, to give us hearts that long and love you, where you used to find only apathy and hatred. And God, I pray that you would do that work in us now. God, I pray that we would see your greatness and glory more clearly than we ever have before. That we would delight in your wisdom and your ways. That we would see the goodness of all that you have done. That we would listen. That we would trust. And that we would obey. By your grace and for your glory in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.